Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Gia Salento. Gia is a publisher for The Underdog. She was born in London, England and immigrated to the United States at three months old. Her family moved about the United States, and by the time she was 10 years old, she'd moved approximately 20 times. The people she met along the way and the experiences she gained sparked her imagination and created a love for the written word that would shape her life. Today, she's an award-winning writer, noted publisher, life coach, and communications expert. Her career in publishing spans nearly 30 years. Gia has an extensive experience in print and digital media, writing, editing, coaching, as well as leading and managing projects and creative teams. She first joined the publishing world as a part-time typesetter in the mid-80s and quickly fell in love. She'd always loved books reading and writing, and the publishing industry brought a welcome outlet to her passions. Moving through various positions at the newspaper, she soon became the production director and computerized the production of a small local entertainment paper, one of the first to do so in the state of Florida, and found a love for technology along the way. After working in the newspaper magazine industry for nearly her entire career, Gia knew that one day she'd start a publishing house. Throughout the ensuing years, she researched ways to combine her love of publishing with internet technology and the burgeoning online publishing industry. The thought stayed with her as her work took her across the country. And in 2010, when she settled back down in Ferndale, Michigan, she began a writing group. It was at these writing groups that she would think of the name Mad Hatter, and in 2014, after about 20 years of planning, wanting, and waiting, she finally incorporated her publishing house. Today, Gia runs a growing publishing company, Mad Hatter Publishing, Inc., partnering with talented and passionate writers, and also writes her own books that aim to help people create a fantastic life. She lives in southeastern Michigan with her wife, two dogs, and their cat. With a passion for words and creating, she spends her spare time, when she has it, staring at blank pages, imagining the joy of filling them up with her thoughts and imaginings. Chia, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm wonderful, Michelle. Thank you so much. That was uh, really interesting hearing that read back to me. <laughs> I know. Do you ever have those moments 
I was telling someone I was in Saginaw, and I had, you know, I was listening to somebody reading it, and I'm sort of had that out of body moment going like, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's um it's kind of like oh oh I I I remember that yes I did do that didn't I? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know I think I think one of the things that I found most interesting about you is your love of books, and I'll tell you as a little girl from the east side of Detroit. I found books in the library as my doorway to the world. But here, by the time you were 10, you had moved around. You had traveled, you know, pops, you had moved like about 20 times. What were yeah. books and the library to you? Um, yeah, we, we moved a lot. And uh, I had crossed the international date line like five or six times before I was mm-hmm. 10, and, which was very unusual back then to travel so much. Um, but books and, and the books were kind of like a, they gave me a place to go. It was kind of a, not quite a refuge. It wasn't like I needed a refuge. But it, when you travel so much as a child, it's hard to make uh, strong friendships. So the books and libraries were a place that I knew they were always going to be wherever I was. So there was always going to be a library that I could go to and feel at home and meet people who also love books. So it was, mm. um, and, it, and there's just, just something very comforting and familiar about any library you go into. There's a smell, there's an atmosphere, um, even though they're, uh, kind of dwindling these days, mm-hmm. and it's a very different kind of place to be. Not as many actual physical books, but it still um, it still holds that place of there's learning, and I love learning new things, and I love being taken to foreign lands through um, the written word, someone following someone else's imagination and and their vision for how they see things and, and how they live or how they'd like to live. So um, it was, um, it's just always been like a close friend, actually, mm-hmm. books and reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, were you, I was the kid who always had the book either like in my book bag and a backpack mm-hmm. and a pocket. You know, in fact, I got that from my, my mother did and my son is the same, same way. You know, books are your friends, you know. Are yeah. What? Do you remember a book that coming up that you read and you said, I want to do this, I want to write? Well, I, I, nothing in particular, only two things actually come to mind. Um, mm-hmm. One was uh, my mother was a big reader too and, mm-hmm. and her parent, you know. Uh, but um, there was a book I read. We had to do a report when I was in second grade, a written report. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I did mine on Abe, Abe Lincoln, and I researched mm-hmm. him. And I wrote, I wrote a five-page paper in the second grade. And, <laughs> the, te- <laughs> and the teacher said to my mother, um, we needed a paragraph or two. We didn't expect somebody to write five pages at this age. So it was kind of, it was nothing I ever really thought about in terms of I'm going to be a writer or I want to be a writer. It was always just, it was just something I was always good at. And it just kind of, you know, I would look at things and then if I had to write something or um, it, it would just kind of 
it was uh, easy, so I never really thought of it as anything unusual yeah. because it was part of me. Mm-hmm. As I grew older, though, it was like I, I realized, um, oh, that's something I can do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't. I never put the two together until I was a bit older, and I realized that it was something. It wasn't something everyone else did. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was something unique to me. And then my grandparents and were authors, and uh, they wrote a lot. Do- they were both doctors. My father was a doctor, and that profession call it thrives on um, writing articles and things, but they also wrote books and published mm. books. So I kind of uh, it just always seemed like something that one would do. Uh, it's fascinating, you know. I mean, there's so many ways. Like I think that you and I had sort of we were like in parallel kind of uh, universes <laughs> because I know, like when I got into school, and I know that in fact when I I could read, I could read and write, and I know that the one teacher didn't believe that I could read and write, <laughs> you know. Oh, and so she kept right. bringing these books, you know, and you know, so pretty soon, like the next grade brought a book, and I could read that, and it was like so. You know, it's like, well, I guess she can read. But I had people mm-hmm. in my family who also wrote. And, you know, uh, aunts and, and uncles who were teachers and they wrote. When you found that, were your family members, did they encourage you to work? Or did you feel like a moment of like, well, I wrote this book. And, well, if I show it to them because they write real books, that they would support or what did you were you just like a little timid about showing your efforts to them not when I published my first book just recently just last year I did not have any qualms about showing anything to my mm-hmm. my family my family has always been very supportive of anything I do um, my grandparents have all passed away so they didn't get to see me produce anything like this and my father had passed away already too so I didn't get to share this part of me with them Mm-hmm. Um, I had always written shorter pieces prior to this, so they were, you know, essays or uh, articles, shorter in nature, less than ten thousand mm-hmm. words. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it wasn't um, something I got to share with them. But my mother was incredibly encouraging, and my siblings, my sisters and brothers, and everybody was uh, has always been, and still is. Just like when are you going to write your next book? Which I I am working mm. on one, but mm-hmm. but you know just uh, and talk to their friends about it, and I can tell they've told me they're very proud. So it's and it's kind of you know kind of one of those things where I feel like I'm blushing because it, it's even though everybody you, you know at least I think everybody wants to hear someone say they're proud of you. So, but mm-hmm. it's kind it's kind of different when somebody actually says it to you, someone you care about, and it's like oh. Wow, thank you. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, yeah, so I always had lots of support in in that realm and um, really appreciate it too because I think it would have been more difficult because I, I don't, I haven't always had a lot of, uh, you know, as an artist, I, I, I paint too and I do other kinds of crafty things and then there's mm-hmm. always, you know, I, I yeah, I have an eye that says, oh, well, this is wrong and that's wrong and it's not, maybe not good enough, maybe not as good as anyone else's. Or, so I I think getting feedback from people you care about m- makes it easier to see your own work in a less critical eye. 
Yeah, I, I certainly understand that because it is. It's something about when you have a family member go, you know, especially the ones who like, you know, and they go like, wow, you know, you really can do this. And it's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, it, it's an affirmation that, that maybe you're not expecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when it comes, yeah. it's very, very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's kind of, that's really, that's really great. Now, you went into, it's interesting that, that you know, like your world, your path into publishing was through, you know, you worked as a typesetter. Did you know, even though you weren't, you were writing but not writing, that you wanted to be somehow a part of that industry, which led you to this typesetting job? Um, it was really happenstance because I, I, my family um, was medical. Even my mother had been in pre-med before she met my dad. And so in my mind, that was, that was what I was supposed to do. So mm-hmm. there wasn't, even though I saw books and I saw publish it because there were, oh, when I started thinking about it, there were, um, there was a book out at the time in the 80s, I think, that, was about publishing and being in publishing and being an author and writing, being a writer. And I kind of looked at it as something that I couldn't do, that it was not available to me because I was supposed to be a doctor. Hmm. So it, it took a while for me to, and, and you know, just to put it in a, God just led me and put the pieces down for me. And here was this, opportunity to use a skill I already had as a type, you know, I could type, I learned typing. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I could do that. I would, and I'll try it out. And, <laughs> and it just turned out to be one of those things that I would not have, I wouldn't have applied for that kind of job. It just was like, hey, do you, I need somebody to do this. Can you do this for me for, you know, till I find someone else? And it just went from there. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah it, you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, somehow you end up doing what you're supposed to, to do, <laughs> and you don't see it at the time, you know, it's just a like, yeah. well, okay, I can do this, you know, yeah. I, I can do this, you know. I never would have thought you, that 30 years later I'd, I'd be doing, you know, I, I just, it, I could not have seen it, but I'm so glad that, that the, you know, higher power saw it so that I could, you, you know, um, be where I am now because it's very gratifying. You know, I know what you mean because, I mean, I always did, like, accounting and stuff like that. That's what I thought I was meant to do and wrote on the side. And then somehow or other I ended up working, like, for newspapers and things like that. Then I, oh, I could write this and I could write that and then sort of, of seeing it. But I think that if someone told me way back that, you know, well, one day you're going to write and do things like, oh, no, you know, I just do it for fun, but, but, you know, but to be able to do what you, it's in your heart and that you love and do, you know, so, I mean, that's just it. You've seen things change. I mean, from typesetting to like what typesetting was 30 years ago to what people are doing now. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've really watched it grow and develop and change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating, and I've always I mean uh, it, it's just a fascinating thing. I, it, the thing that the machine I started out on was um, it, it was a Selectric typewriter that mm-hmm. was fitted fitted to make 
uh, typesetting rows on kind of a plastic film that was then mm -hmm. cut and pasted onto boards um, mm. that made, made up each page. So there were, it was a very manual, intensive type of effort. Do you see, yeah, uh, especially, I mean, I mean, I can recall, like, I was once talking with this woman who, I mean, and she loved to be 100, but she was talking about, we were talking about, you know, she'd written a number of books, and she talked about how the first book, how, you know, how she literally typed it out, you know, and, and then, like you said, how they had to put it all together and do all this, and then later in life, how she was writing books, and she said how she went from the typewriter to word processing to what we, what we do now, and you see it. Do you see, you know, as you were watching it evolve, what, as the other part of you, as a writer, did you feel that it was making life, your ability to go into that world more accessible? And do you still see that it makes it the ability to write and for us to tell our stories more accessible to people because the way technology has, has moved along? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Uh, I think perhaps people who wanted to write have always written, maybe pen and paper, and sometimes they would be able to uh, keep it or, you know, maybe they didn't have access to a typewriter and typing isn't always as easy for some people as it is for others. And, you know, so, I mean, even technology today, using a keyboard, but you can, now you can do tech, uh, voice to text. So I think not just the ability to actually put something down and have it be read by others, but the number of others who are, uh, who are accessible to have it, to consume it has, burge I mean, it's just an incredible growth. And the number of people who are actually putting things out there and, and even quality, not, not talking about the quality of everything, but the, the courage it takes whether you've gone through a formal pub, uh, editing process or you've published it yourself or you've gone through the courage it takes to put yourself and your heart down on a page mm -hmm. and then have others read it, put it out there for the public, for anybody to comment on it. Um, it's, it's huge. It's a big thing. It's a big deal to do that. And I think the number of people who now are, are just saying, hey, I'm going to do it. I can do it here. It's easy. It's a lot easier than it used to be. Um, I mean, th if you think about it, if you type something out on a physical paper, piece of paper, and then you had ended up with, say, you know, 300 pieces of paper, it could easily be destroyed. So mm -hmm. it was a very precious thing. Now, you know, you've just got to make sure you have a backup here and you've got maybe something on a disk at home, uh, you know, a thumb drive, and <laughs> you've uploaded mm -hmm. it to the cloud a couple of places. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of amazing and beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. You know, as you, you know, you've evolved. I mean, like you started, you know, typesetting. You were always the writer in that, but now you're doing publishing. Do you find, though, having that intersection, I mean, being a writer, knowing about editing, knowing about how it all works, that then when you're working with people that you're able to hear their soul. I mean, like I know that once um, I had someone and I was like helping edit like th what their memoir was. And there was a way that 
I looked at it and where one part of me was like, oh, no. But then the, the lighter part of me came in and said, okay, how do I gently move them to this place? Do you find that often that you have to juggle all three hats as the people you're dealing with? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. even a few more hats because the the big, you know, there's a big part of the the process is writing the book and polishing it and editing it and getting it ready. But then the the next huge process is um, is uh, marketing and actually once you getting ready to launch and launching and trying to make it successful and and a lot of that starts with the writing. So there's a whole lot of things to think about and to have a a writer who wants to be published, have them understand and um, and then have them also know that there's a lot of more lot more work to do than just writing your book and and, and you're not finished yet. <laughs> mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so and sometimes um, some of that is easier than others, other parts some parts of that are easier than others to have a writer understand that there's still more for you to do. And um, some people don't want to really have all of that. That's that's why some people self-publish and some people want to go to a publisher. You know, mm-hmm. some people are like, I want to do it all. I want to have my hands in everything. I'm really enjoy <laughs> this part. And I, you know, mm-hmm. they just want to have. Mm-hmm. And some people don't want to have anything to do with any more of it. They want to write their book and then they want to step out of it. And um, it's not as easy to write your book and step out of it these days because if people want to know who the author is, they want to kind mm-hmm. of be able to to uh, touch you somehow even if it's just on your website. So, you know, we produce websites um, mostly for authors, but we also produce websites for uh, personal services like fitness trainers and mm-hmm. hairstylists and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, it's that whole part of getting online and, and maybe sharing more of yourself than you did in your book or in a different way. Um, putting mm-hmm. a blog out. So like you're doing, a, your podcast is um, another aspect of what you're using to, to be in touch with people and to communicate with them. And um, So there's so many ways and some people take to it, like a, a fish in water, to use a cliche, uh, and others are just, they just don't want to, they don't want to. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, there's so many facets and um, there, there are a lot of moving parts. So, you know, you've moved around. You were in Miami. You were in Florida, okay? And now you're here in Michigan. And, uh-huh. you know, um, I mean, and at this point, I mean, many of us are thinking like, you know, I want to be in Florida, particularly during the winter. What yeah. brought you to Michigan? Oh, I, um, my dad... Uh, had us live here for a while when I was a kid before we moved to Miami uh, Mm -hmm. as one of the stops along the way. Um, And so I consider Miami my home, Miami Beach actually, not Miami. But Mm -hmm. uh, so I grew up down there. My mom is still down actually living in Miami. My sister is there and I go back often. Um, But my uh, my ex-husband is from here. So I was mm-hmm. living down there and met him, and we moved up here, had a couple of kids, and my kids are still here. In fact, I'm at my daughter's house right now, um, <laughs> which is a, another wonder of technology. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I have grandchildren, and it's uh, 
you couldn't keep me away. The mm-hmm. winter cannot keep me away. The cold weather is not going <laughs> to make me stop living my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, Gia, we're going to take a quick break here. Then I want to get into Mad Fatter Publishing and your book. So we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Welcome you back to Collections by Michelle Brown. Today we're talking with Gia Salento. She's an author, a publisher, she's traveled, she's an award-winning writer, a life coach and communications expert. Gia, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. So, um, but I want to talk about, like, you came here and um, you had a writing group, and I know that that can be, like, very helpful to you. And from that, you said that the name came to you to do Mad Hatter. Now, when I think of Mad Hatter, I think of Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why did did you select Mad Hatter? Um, Actually, one of our group members, Larry, thought of the name Mad Hatter because we had such a varied group of people um, in in the group. And he actually went out and bought hats for everybody, different kinds of hats. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of fun. He was a great guy. I really appreciated having him in the group. Even though sometimes we butt heads, um, we would have different opinions about things. He was actually, uh, I've lost touch with him recently uh, because the group just hasn't come together in a while. It's, uh, you know, sometimes you can keep groups alive for a while, but things changed, and um, in terms of my my schedule, and some other people got different kinds of jobs, and um, so it was it was something to me. Mad Hatter was not so much a an Alice in Wonderland character as um, a kind of you know you have to wear different hats in life sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where it took me, and since the group name was named that and it meant a lot to me and it was a lot of fun and it was also very it was a a situation where if you've you take your your written word and you have people you trust um, give you feedback on it sometimes it's scary sometimes it's intimidating Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like why did I let them read that And sometimes it's very uplifting. Mostly it's uplifting and, you know, very supportive. And there's a, you know, some of us still get together for um, the uh, novel, the novel writing month, November. Mm-hmm. NaNoWriMo, National Novel mm-hmm. Writing Month. I don't know if you've heard of it. 
mm-hmm. every November, a bunch of crazy people get together and try to write a book in a month, a 50,000-word book or more, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's why I, I thought it, it meant it, it was a good name to use, and it was... Um, it just meant to me that there was there was more to everybody, more to life, more to me, more to writing than just one one facet, than just the end book that people see on the shelf. There's mm-hmm. a whole lot that went into it. So. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And I know there is that part, and and to have that group, and there are people. I often have people say like, you know, we want to write or to do it, and I know that. In other cities, like I have friends who are in Brooklyn, and they have, like, regular writing groups, regular writing salons that they mm-hmm. are participating. Like you said, and some of them go on for years and years. And um, But then you have other things where you go, like, people are like, well, you know, I have this story. I want to do if I had a group to, to come together. What do you find, I mean, besides, you know, I think that it is important to let someone hear and get some feedback you know, from other people as you're writing. But what do you say to those who are like, you know, I'm just going to sit down and write my book. Why would you encourage someone to become part of a group? Um, one of the biggest reasons for me is the support. It, mm-hmm. Writing is a very individual thing. It, it, you know, it's one of those things you can, you really have to do on your own for the most part. There are some people who write well with others. Um, but one of the things about, because you're doing a solitary thing, being with a group of people, for one, it gets you out of the house. And it gets, <laughs> your, it gets your mind out of there, out of that place, and lets you kind of explore what other people are doing to know that you're not the only one going through whatever you might be going through. Um, to maybe get a, a, a reality check on your plot line to talk about, so that's to talk about the technical aspects of writing, um, maybe to learn something, um, camaraderie, again, support, and uh, feedback. And sometimes people who, birds of a feather, uh, tend mm-hmm. to feel really good when they're flying with their own flock. So, there, you know, somebody who maybe is um, very physically active and is into sports a lot and is out doing things and doesn't have any, never reads a book, they might not understand what you're going through when you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next when your plot, when you're writing and your plot already suddenly takes a left-hand turn that you weren't expecting because it happens and somebody who has never written might not understand what that even means. Mm-hmm. You know, well, yeah. um, so if you're with a group of people who understand that, then you can you can kind of find your way through it. You might find a solution. You might realize, oh, okay, I'll just go with that and I'll find a way to stick to my outline or, or I'll find a way to adjust the outline to wherever this turn has taken me. Maybe it's a better way to go. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things that kind of... Um, support and camaraderie that, that you find with groups of people who do the similar thing, a similar hobby that you're pursuing. Plus, I think it also will spur you on to keep going if you hit a rough spot mm-hmm. and feel like quitting. It'll, you know, 
when you have others around you who are like, know that you're working on something, it gives you a little bit more of an impetus to continue working through whatever, you know, tough spot you might find yourself in. Um, so it just kind of gives you that little extra bit of a nudge where if you didn't have that support, you might just stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I found, like, I mean, I've been on panels with other writers and stuff, and I was in... Um Washington, D.C., a few years back. And mm-hmm. there were some, and this was particularly an LGBTQ panel. And one of the things that a lot of what we were talking about, and one of the, the young people, well, he wasn't so young, but we'll call him young. He was <laughs> younger. Well, well, I, yeah, younger. One of the things <laughs> that, you know, we were talking about, and um, because although a lot of what I do it encompasses everything of, of, of me, which is more mm-hmm. than just LGBTQ. But he was saying that he had found that as he was going through the publishing process, that if he wrote things that dealt with his intimate life or that had a sexual theme, that there was a lot of people who were willing to like run to him. But that wasn't the story that he wanted to write. However... There is that, that, you know, the two hats, the hat of like putting money in the bank and then of writing. Mm-hmm. How do you as a publisher help people navigate that? I know that in the Between the Lines article, they said you were the publisher for the underdog. And I mean, and you know, everything that you write isn't going to be a huge big seller. Everybody can't be, you know, you know, Stephen, Stephen King. King. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, really, but sometimes you write the story that you have to write and it's going to appeal to the people who it's supposed to. But mm-hmm. what do you say to or how do you encourage people to find their authentic voice who, like this guy was saying, it was like, okay, I really want to be a writer. So if I just write this stuff, which I can just sort of crank out, I can make some money and then hopefully get back to what I really want to do. Well, what do you say to people who are sort of caught in that trap? Well, um, that's not an easy answer. I think everybody probably has an individual story that has to be worked out. Uh, You Mm -hmm. have to be true to yourself. That's one of the things I would say. You've got to be true to yourself. If you feel okay, um, uh, if you're going to crank out some stuff that you don't really like, it's probably going to be crap. And mm. people might buy it, but because they want the the jolt of adrenaline or endorphins that they get from reading the parts that they actually like, uh, if I'm reading you correctly, if I'm understanding mm-hmm. what you're talking about correctly, mm-hmm. um, they don't care if there's a good plot or if it's written well. A lot of you know, uh, that's my guess. I'm mm-hmm. I don't do that myself. But if I were going to do that, and I also wanted to have a career as a serious writer, I would use a, a, pseudonym, a pseudonym for one thing. I wouldn't write those kind of things under my own name. But I know that people do that. They'll, they'll use a pen name and they'll write all kinds of stuff, that, stuff that they can crank out quickly. They don't have to spend a lot of time making sure that it's polished and just put it up there and make um, you know, a few hundred bucks a week or whatever they're making, a few hundred dollars, a few thousand, and mm-hmm. give themselves a cushion and some support, some financial support, so that they can have the time to actually focus on, you know, the next great American novel. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, if you can be okay with that, 
that's then then be okay with that. There's not. I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Uh, you just have to be satisfied with it. You have to feel okay about it. Um, and some people will, and some people won't. I know people who write for a living, doing um, other kinds of writing that are for working for a corporation. I used to work for a Fortune 50 corporation doing communication work, and and while it was interesting and it was communicative, it was still working for a big company, but it also you know paid the bills and helped mm-hmm. me take care of my kids, put food on the table, that kind of thing. And um, to some degree, I think you need to focus on that. If you have a responsibility and you, you can't actually think about another way to handle that responsibility like children um, mm-hmm. and a family. And on the other hand, if you have faith in yourself um, and you know that you can provide for your family and have the career that you want to have as a writer, uh, I think you need to have that, uh, you know, a strong enough belief and faith and if you have that, I think you should allow yourself to follow it, if that makes any sense. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a, it doesn't have to be an either or. I think you can have the kind of life you want if you put your belief and your faith in the right direction um, and start and do the work and, you know, crank out those pages and, and polish it and do what you need to do with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, Does that answer you know, your question? Yeah, yeah. Um, not, but I, I take it to the next thing. We have another generation that's coming up, and they're looking at all different kinds of ways that they're communicating. And mm-hmm. young people have great stories to tell. How then do you see or, or have you ever had the opportunity to go into schools, education, um, and to talk to young people? You know, I mean, I, just, I was telling someone once, I, um, I had an aunt who was a teacher, and I write, would write her stories, and she'd send them back to me corrected and read. And, but, you know, I, as she said, I was hard-headed, so I just kept writing stories. But now, in our school, in our education, you know, there aren't a lot of avenues to do creative writing, to do that, where there might be that next novelist or even a young person who young people, like I said, have great stories to tell that don't know that. Have you ever had the opportunity to go into schools or to work with people who are in education to sort of give a broad framework as to how they could encourage young people to write? And when you're talking with your grandchildren, how do you encourage them to tell their stories? Um, I, I have not had the opportunity to do to go into schools. It hasn't been an avenue that I've had any opportunities. But I have looked into it recently. I found that there was a, a program, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but there's a program where you can, um, I think it's out of Ann Arbor, Isolani, that goes into schools and helps create writing workshops and, and things of that nature. And uh, I bookmarked it so I could look into you know, doing some kind of work with that and seeing if I could uh, encourage people to know that they can write things down. And sometimes it might come out, even if it's not writing, maybe it's drawing, maybe it's some kind of creating just to let kids know that 
it's because I don't know how much schools can actually do artistic things anymore, creative things, have creative outlets for for children, um, with budgets being what they are. Um, but and with my grandchildren, uh, well, one of them is is just starting out in school, so I like to let him tell me his stories. I don't give him mm-hmm. too much um, direction. I just like to let him know that I'm listening. Mm. And I think that's mm-hmm. a that's a big deal because people don't always listen to children because they they don't always talk quickly enough and they don't have the vocabulary and they search for words a little bit and you know so they having somebody take the time to hear them I think um you know they get it they they understand that that that's kind of a a big deal and I can see it in his eyes uh mm-hmm. my older one and the younger one is not quite two yet. Um, so she doesn't have many words to say, but she is quite loud. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling she, she, she tries to get her point across as often as possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, she has a good set of lungs. And um, I think she'll be quite good at, at communicating too. Uh, so I, I just... I think that people are always going to want to communicate and kids will always find a way to do something. And if they have even the slightest bit of encouragement or the the slightest inkling that they could possibly do something, um, they're going to try and do it. You know, so if they can get the tools and you don't need much to write, you just need a pencil and paper, even if you you don't have to have a, a, you know, a computer, you don't have to have an iPad you don't have to really, you could write in the sand. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. It's something that anybody can do anywhere. Um, and if you can't write with your hands or feet, then you can, you know, find some technology that can actually allow you to do the, to, to speak it or type it out if you need to, if you have, there's just so many ways that you can do it, but you don't have to have special technology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I've talked to a number of people who are collecting oral histories. And one of the things that you just said, which I think is really great, they talked about not only listening to our elders and the stories that they're telling, but also the elders listening to the young people, you know, Mm -hmm. and how that as we collect our stories and share our stories, how it fosters understanding and helps bridge the gap. And really helped to see how, you know, the continuation of humanity. And uh, so yeah. I think that, that, that that's, that's great that, that you, like you said, you sit and listen and you let him do it. I know I was at, um, in the Southfield schools, and often the way that you're able to do it is like somebody from the outside has to go in and you just have to volunteer your time. And mm-hmm. I had a teacher who said, how did you get them to sit down and write stuff? And I said, well, I just told them to just tell me. You know, I didn't worry about was it correct, you know, was the spelling Mm -hmm. right or whatever. I just encouraged them to, like, tell the story. And like you said, these kids were so happy that somebody was listening to them. Yeah. You know, to them. Mm -hmm. And I often tell them, like, there was one, you know, how important that is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, I think everybody, no matter what age, I think everybody wants to know that they're being heard. 
That's why so many mm-hmm. people are talking. That's why so many people are on social media. They want to know that somebody cares. They want to mm-hmm. know, you know, they just want to say something and they want to know that somebody heard them. So mm-hmm. press like, you know, hit like if you, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, did you hear me? Yes, I heard mm-hmm. you. There you go. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's, it, I think it's that simple. People, people like to communicate. People like to know that other people see them mm-hmm. and hear them. And that's very basic. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that you're into, uh, you know, in, in a minute, I'm, when we come back in our next segment, I want to talk about your book. But I know that you're in publishing. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, I'm one of those old school people. I have tons of books. Okay, mm-hmm. and there's nothing more satisfying to me than some point, you know, I've got this favorite chair and I get in the chair and I crack open that book and I read it and I, I mark it and sometimes I go back and highlight things and go back and read it. But I know a lot of people, my sister, one, that's like she's got her Kindle and, you know, I don't, she mm-hmm. says, I can't believe you still buy a book. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what is the future for books as we know it? And is there... How do you see what's the balance between that book in your hand and the ebook? Well, I uh, I actually just got a hardcover book, which I I haven't bought a hardcover book. I don't even remember when. Um, and I I was so thrilled to get it in the mail. It's from Amazon. And I was mm-hmm. so thrilled to get it. <laughs> I was like, ooh, and I cracked open. You know, you could hear this. By oh my gosh, it was it was. Delicious. It was such an experience. Perfect word. Delicious. (laughs) And, you know, it's a a nonfiction book. It's a book that I can keep for a long time and refer back to. And, and like, what did he say there? And how did you do this part? And and it's a very interesting thing, and it's about using technology. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want that. And I've, I've actually had some books on Kindle that I then bought the paperback because, um, I wanted to market, and I wanted to mm-hmm. to be able to, and it to. I think just like the um, the phase we went through, and I'm using finger quotes, the phase we went through as a culture when we were supposed to be paperless. Oh, no mm-hmm. paper! And all of a sudden, we were using ten times more paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we would send emails and, and attachments and faxes and then you'd have to print out this thing and that thing and file it away. I mean, it, it's it's um, there's still going to people are still going to want to have something I think to look at and hold in their hands in certain respects for certain things. I think mm-hmm. fiction, unless you have perhaps a first edition that you want signed. Um, if you you know what I'm talking about, I don't know how much fiction people are going to continue buying in a hard copy um, because it's more like a consumable, whereas a nonfiction book, a lot of times is a something um, that's teaching. So mm. there are a lot of, and there are some that okay, I, I get it, and I don't, I've read it, I don't need any more from it. Um, because I, I don't need it as a reference. So there's some things as references that are easier to look through if you're used to looking through paper. Now the next gen, next two generations out perhaps might not have that feeling, but there are still children's books being produced in in the hard copy and in, in the 
uh, you know, things that are tangible. They're made mm-hmm. out of cloth. They're made out of boards. They're made out of paper. And those are still being produced. And kids, there's always, there's going to be more kids. And they want to, they're tactile. They mm-hmm. want to feel something. Although, I mean, and the kids these days, they are so, the technology is uh, second nature to them. Mm-hmm. So they're going to grow up in a totally different mindset. So I, I don't, I don't, I mean, you know, my mother and she grew up listening to the radio for entertainment. And they didn't have television. And then mm-hmm. they had movies that would come out every once in a while. In fact, my grandmother used to play the piano for the silent movies when they came out. Wow. So, you know, that's just my my grandparents' generation, because they were older, and my mom was a surprise. She was one of those later in life things. I think she totally caught my my grandmother off guard, and mm-hmm. she has older siblings, so they're they're quite a bit older than she is. But mm-hmm. so you know, they go back. But all of my grandparents were born in the 1800s, so it was a totally. I mean, the amount of advancement we've had in that 130 years or 120 years is is incredible who knows what's going to happen in the next 20 years even what we're going to be doing maybe we'll just think things to each other and we won't mm. have to oh. <laughs> but you know, you know what that uh, makes that, that also makes me think of you know like the bookstore i remember in um Sundale, there was the woman's prerogative and you could go yeah. there and 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 hunt around and I have friends keith and martin who are up in ann arbor who have common language bookstore yeah. and I mean, they were, I mean, just recently, I don't, they've been doing things and people have been ordering books and stuff. And I'll admit, I mean, I do order books from Amazon. I try to order from small books, but there was something about bookstores, just like with libraries, that you sort of wandered mm-hmm. through and, and looked and you'd find, you know, maybe a title that you didn't think about or something like that. And so, you know, what a loss. If we don't have books, you know, I mean, that, that joy, like what we can remember going to the library, but also going to bookstores. And as mm-hmm. technology is changing and stuff, what will happen to these, these things? I mean, are they just going to disappear? I mean, well, something that's uh, experiencing a revival, actually, is um, custom-made books with handmade paper and mm-hmm. hand-printed hand with old Typesetting, you know the back, when, like the like a Gutenberg type press where you would mm. set the metal. So that's becoming um, that is experiencing a revival of these small boutique places that are very very custom made books. You're not going to produce a lot of them. Mm-hmm. You know, not in the tens of thousands, but they're going to be beautiful and they're going to be something that people can treasure and put on their uh, showcase in their living rooms and, and, you know, wherever they showcase things. But mm-hmm. it's something that people can look at it, admire, and say, oh, because it's a craft. So that mm-hmm. craft of bookmaking is, is really, um, there are some publishers out in Colorado who are doing really well with that. And they make some beautiful stuff. I mean, they make their own paper and cut it all themselves. It's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. So I think yeah. just like, uh, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, just like um, any industry where you get big companies and then you have a change in technology that causes a lot of smaller companies to come around and, you know, there's, there wasn't an ability for small publishing houses to exist 20 years ago or 30 mm-hmm. years ago. You know, so there's, there's always change in an industry and technology creates it sometimes. People create it. Sometimes uh, environments create it. So I think that there's, you know, there's always going to be a place for something hardbound simply because we need to have records of it. And you can't always access electronic data if um, you don't have electricity. So, you know, mm-hmm. just by necessity, we need to ha- make sure that we have tombs of um, learning and literature and things that remind us, us of our humanity and um, how much we've progressed over the years just, just so we have it, just so we know and we can remember if we ever happen to forget, you know? We mm-hmm. can access it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm, you know I, I really love the small bookstore. I mean, I know that um, it was that common language where I first, like, jumped off into poetry and read poetry in front of people and didn't die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it didn't die. They didn't throw tomatoes at me. And, and to go places like um, in Provincetown and to have women who got what I was writing and what I was reading to them. So, you know, there are other ways, like you said, that bookstores as we knew it can morph into and encompass things beyond just having that hardcover book, but also be the place, like you said, where there'll always be some need for that. Well, we're going to take another quick break, and then I want to come back and talk about your book, which I love. (laughs) So we will be right back. Okay. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here with my guest today, Gia Salento, and I love the title, How to Go from Frazzle to Fantastic, a step-by-step guide to manage your stress, stop your worry, and feel fantastic every day. And I would tell you, you know, I mean, and I have pretty fantastic days, but there are days when, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to go here, I've got to prepare a speech, I've got to write this, I've got to do that, and I've got to go do all that. How do I manage it? Oh, my God. Yeah, you wrote this tearing your hair out, Dave. Yeah, I know, I know. 
hey, you know, and that's the day that I have a bad hair day too, you know. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what was your inspiration? Was this like a, a personal journey that you had that brought you to this book? What what brought you to this book? This great title, and what are you saying to people? How, what are some tips from this? Um. I think, uh, yes, it was uh, my own personal journey. Um, I know that's redundant, but it it did come from life experience. I I had to learn that myself. Uh, At one point, I, you know, things happen in life, and I'm not going to really get into any of that, but I was at a Mm -hmm. point where I was like, you know, my biggest wish was to be able to wake up in the morning and and feel okay and not feel... Mm. uh, beaten up or riddled with anxiety and feel that pit of my stomach churning. Um, so it was, uh, I was on a quest and I, and I kind of felt like, geez, I got to be able to, you know, something has got to change here because it, it just wasn't, it, it seemed like, um, you know, like I just was stuck. Uh, and mm-hmm. stu- stuck is a, is a very mild way to put it. Um, cause I didn't put it in the book, but I had had a, a bad car crash before that, like 20, 20 years ago. So it, it just, things in life changed. And I was like, geez, come on, something go my way is kind of, and I was feeling very victim-y, very much like mm. the world was happening to me. And I, I didn't, I wasn't standing in a place of power or a place of like, I could make decisions in my life that, that worked for me. So it was a, it was a, a journey. It was a, quest to find a way to 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 feel good and um so the things i write about it uh in the book are about finding out who you are what what makes me tick what who am i and mm-hmm. you know what am i thinking where are these thoughts can, can i control my own thoughts and um should i it does it even make sense so you know, there's things that I do that I've instituted in my life over time that have made a huge difference. So, you know, I wake up in the morning and I I feel awesome. And I feel awesome mm. every day. And I, if I feel off a little bit, then it's, it's very noticeable to me. And I'm like, and then I, I don't, I don't tolerate it. I won't tolerate it. It, it just, it's not something I'm going to allow my mind to or my brain activity to have its way with me i'm going to if my thoughts are coming up you know or if something is bothering me or something happens in life that is unexpected i have tools and ways to handle it so that i can stay um clear enough mentally to not be stuck in the issue of the problem and not be overwhelmed by it, but to kind of straighten myself out and be kind of put myself mentally and emotionally in the vicinity or the direction where the solution can be seen mm. or found or discovered or created. So it's, um, it, it's uh, through years of different courses and different books and different teachings and listening to different places, things at, at different people, different teachers, gurus, um, you know, and uh, spiritual thought 
processes, meditation has been uh, plays a big role in it. And to me, some people have a thing about meditation; they might have a bias. But to me, meditation is quieting your mind, being able to to quiet, and, and not transcendental meditation because I mm-hmm. I find that a little intimidating. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I I most of the time use either a guided meditation or I'll just start breathing. I'll just follow my breath and count my breath. You know, so many in, so many not, uh, seconds in, three counts in breath, uh, four or five counts out breath, or more, whatever. And it, just focusing on, focusing on something innocuous like that and as other thoughts that might be intrusive or upsetting come in, I, I let them slide by. I say, thank you for sharing. You know, mm. pass mm-hmm. on by. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. f- focus back on the breath. So, and it it wasn't an immediate thing. I mean, I learned about meditation first in in the eighties. I think my sister introduced me to it, and I, it wasn't something I practiced every day until more recently in the past six or ten years, where it's been a daily thing. Mm. Now you know when you're when you're out talking with people and you have your book, you know. In some ways, this seems like a more stressful time, and you know I know what you're saying about that. How sometimes you know, like recognizing that some things. Why are you stressed about? You know, <laughs> you you can't really change this, but you know, how do you how do you find peace? But do you find that more people are are feeling stressed and are looking for some type of guide, something to help them deal with all that they see? That's a good question. I I think it depends on the person. I I know that there are a lot of people I know who have allowed themselves to get caught up in thoughts that stress them. and I say a lot. I, there are some people I know, and there are, and I can see it in the environment that there are people mm-hmm. who are grabbing on to something that they think is not right, and then allowing that to be the reason that they don't feel happy. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's a mistake, uh, just because uh, because they don't they don't know that there's another way to approach it. Um, I think it's not maybe maybe mistake isn't the right word, but I I think that they're they don't realize that there's another way to approach it that would still leave them feeling okay. And um, my mom and I have talked a lot about this recently. So, you know, it's something that, um, because she was, you know, looking at things and being upset about them and looking at Mm -hmm. things and being upset about them. And there are things that you have no control over. You can speak about it, but you don't have to allow yourself to be upset about it because if you have no control over it, then it's outside your your purview and you can observe it. If you can observe it without letting it set you off of your own inner balance, then that's fine. But if you observe something that turns you turn topples you inside then you have to look away and until you can mm. write yourself again you have to maintain your own inner balance and it doesn't mean that you never get upset it just means that if you do get upset 
you take the time and pay attention to yourself so that you write yourself inside so that you can maintain your own sense of dominion over your you. You don't let someone else or something outside of you have dominion. You have to take and own yourself. Because there's so much that goes on externally, you could be buffeted every second and and knocked down. Mm-hmm. If you think, if you allow yourself to be uh, in the in a place where you let external things guide how you feel inside. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of spend enough time with yourself internally to say all is well. You know, if you have a belief in God, that's usually can be, or the universe, you know, some people don't like using the word God um, and have faith, then, then you have to know that all is well in the grand scheme of things. And you have to hold on to that and, and place that in the center of your being as your, your you know, you're stored in the ground, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, often, you know, I find myself in the point, you know, where where you're going and you're doing these these. There is that stress out in the world, and yeah. when you go to you're speaking before people, and it's sort of like you don't want to. You know, I know sometimes people think like, oh, here they come with that kumbaya moment, but. There's a way, like you said, to acknowledge it, but then there's so much more and not to stay stuck in that. And, yes. you know, I see it sometimes like in large groups and individuals that, you know, like you said, it's, it's like you're looking at this stuff and they're, they're, they're really frazzled. They, they can't see it. And there's so much more. And just by, like you said, feeling fantastic, about what you're doing and, and recognizing your own strength, like where your, where your sword is, what you can do, that really standing in that truth, you can change all the, mm-hmm. the madness that you see around you. Yeah. It's a very powerful place to stand. It's, a, it's very powerful. And that's why I, I find it so um, peaceful, because there's power mm-hmm. and strength there. Um, if I let... It, yeah, and because I don't have to be upset just because someone else is. I mean, it comes down to a very basic, just because you're upset, it doesn't mean I, just because you're doing something that I don't like or I wouldn't do, doesn't mean I have to be upset about it. Mm-hmm. I can still, I still love myself. I still have a good life. I still find joy in, you know, looking at this beautiful flower that I planted in my garden. Mm-hmm. There's so much more that is beautiful than that isn't, mm-hmm. and that is going right than that isn't. So why would you spend all of your time focusing on something that isn't going the way you think it should? When you take your attention off of that, it's going to diminish. Mm-hmm. It thrives. Those kind of things thrive by putting too much attention on them. You know, like uh, like if you spend time paying too much attention to a little kid who's throwing a bad tantrum and you make that tantrum be a big deal, they'll do it again because you mm-hmm. made a big deal about it. But if you ignore it and you just know that they're a two-year-old throwing a tantrum, they'll get over it in two seconds because they're not getting the attention they want. 
Hmm. And I'm not I'm not saying it's as simple. It might yeah. be simple, but it's not as easy as that in world events. But but it's kind of the similar premise. Huh. Oh yeah, but it is true. It is. It's like you know, how do we get on with what's right and good? Like you know, we know what's right and good about our community. How do we amplify that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the rest sort of. It's almost like you know how they say that as people get to know people who are different than from them, the differences become less. And yeah. and so it is. It's like so we can either focus on what's different or focus on what's right, what's good. Like you can look at a flower, I can look at the flower, and we both see the beauty. We might see it from two different perspectives, but mm-hmm. we both see this beautiful flower, and that's going, that's going that way. So you've got this book. You've got your publishing company. What's next for Gia? Oh, besides enjoying your grandchildren. <laughs> well, I, I I do have a wonderful life. Um, I, I I'm very happy. I have a great partner. We have a great relationship, a great marriage, um, and the, the publishing company is going on. We have three books coming out later this year, um, mm-hmm. and I I have a a book burning in the back of my mind, um, mm-hmm. which is, it, it, I won't tell you the name of it yet because it could change. I haven't, mm-hmm. my writing, a lot of it I do internally and then all of a sudden it all comes mm-hmm. out, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So, um, but that's that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to putting that down. I was going to say on paper, but well, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it'll be in both versions. And then I have, uh, the wing uh, that I'm starting to really work with now of uh, I'm calling it Salento Media, where I'm mm-hmm. producing, doing marketing and websites and communication for um, mm-hmm. local businesses and, and authors. So mm-hmm. authors, uh, personal services people, these are the types of websites and work I've been doing for a while on the mm-hmm. side. So I, uh, I just want to put a little bit more emphasis on that and um, I've been getting more requests so I I thought okay well we'll do some mm-hmm. more of this for a while mm-hmm. so um, still looking you know still working on the publishing company yeah it's all everything is moving moving onward you know I think that it is sort of great to hear you went from someone with this love of books and like you said you know, there might have been twists and turns along the way, but here you are living your passion. And I think that mm-hmm. that's, that's really amazing and what we want to encourage everyone to, to sort of look at. You know, like it might not be a straight shot, you know, but you find your way to that and, and recognizing what your passion is and, and going for it. That, that's, that's just really important, you know, to everyone. I mean, there's no age. I mean, there's no age limit to I've talked to people from all different ages, backgrounds and stuff that when you, when, once you hit it, you go in and you do it and it's, it's great. Well, Gia, Mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much for being with me today to talking about your journey from the young lady who loved libraries to being, (laughs) you know, the, the, 
the published author, the publisher, the life coach, and bringing your expertise to the community and to to keeping that going. You know, um, I really value what you're doing. I want to thank you again for being with us. I know I need to talk to you. <laughs> I need to talk to you because I'll tell you, I mean, that web thing, I mean, I am great at writing. Okay, I am great. I can write, you know, I can come up, I can do poetry, I can go and do that. But why? <laughs> this this <laughs> website thing? My God. <laughs> That's like, yeah. oh, my God, you know. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things, again, the technology that I did fall in love with. It, it's, I just think it's, a, it's fun. It's great. It's not mm-hmm. that hard for me to put a website together. I put, put it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just something I've been doing since the 90s, since I found the Internet and made mm-hmm. my first email. I was like, I was mm-hmm. hooked. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, again, Gia, I want to thank you for being with us today. And um, we'll Thank stay you for touch. having me. Oh, yeah. Okay. I really appreciate it. <laughs> okay. I want to thank today's guest, life coach, author, and publisher, Gia Salento. She's the founder of Mad Hatter Publishing and author of How to Go from Frazzled to Fantastic, a step-by-step guide to manage your stress, stop your worry, and feel fantastic every day. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.